Warmer, sunnier days are finally arriving. As outside is calling, Factor is here to make sure that however busy you get, your meals are taken care of, giving you all the energy and time to enjoy that weather. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So, no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and, oh yes, blackened salmon. Don't mind if I do. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine and give yourself time to focus on what makes you happy. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash danjones50 and use code danjones50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code danjones50 at factormeals.com slash danjones50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Before we start, just a quick warning that this episode contains descriptions of violence or sexual content that may not be suitable for all listeners. A knight on horseback gallops towards the city of Winchester in southern England. He's filthy from a long day in the saddle. The dust kicked up by his horse's thundering hooves has mingled with the sweat on his face, forming dirty streaks. Sea salt from his recent crossing of the English Channel has stiffened his hair and cracked his lips. And he's in pain. There was a big crush to board the ship and his leg was badly injured. But none of that slows him down. This night is William Marshall and he considers himself the most chivalrous man alive. He has always prided himself on doing his duty under any circumstances, no questions asked. Which is just as well, because he's come to Winchester to perform one of the most solemn tasks imaginable. The year is 1189. Days ago, Marshall was in France, where he witnessed a great king die. Shortly after that, He watched the king's eldest son and heir say a curt goodbye to his father's corpse. And now he's in England, where he's been sent to inform the old king's wife that she's a widow. It's a task that's fraught with personal emotion and great intimacy. It's also a deadly serious piece of statecraft. Passing on the message, breaking the medieval news, means announcing regime change to the whole of England. The old king, Henry II, or Henry Plantagenet, had reigned here for just shy of 35 years. He was a larger-than-life character, sharp-witted, quick-tempered and a political genius. He transformed the realm, rewriting laws, rebuilding castles and modernising government. He put England at the heart of a powerful empire that included the French lands of Normandy, Anjou, Brittany and Aquitaine. He was also a controversial figure, with a hair-trigger temper, who repeatedly went to war with his own family and even murdered an Archbishop of Canterbury. Yet much of the population has never known any other ruler. The new king, by contrast, is a bit of an enigma. 
Virtually all that's known about him, on this side of the channel, is his reputation as a fierce warrior, and his name, Richard the Lionheart. Though he was born in England 31 years ago, he spent precious little time there, living most of his life in family lands in France. That's where he is now, and he won't be back over to England for a while. So, who is going to look after things while he's away? Well, that's who our knight is on his way to Winchester to track down. The queen and widow of the old king, Henry II, Eleanor of Aquitaine. She's 65 years old, and she has spent most of the last 15 years in England, although that wasn't exactly her choice. She fell out with her husband spectacularly, leading a family rebellion against him. When that failed, he punished her by putting her under house arrest, a long way from her homelands in southwestern France. Old King Henry's death and their son Richard's accession is Eleanor's long-awaited get-out-of-jail card. She's finally going to be free. What's more, Richard has decided that she is going to rule England on his behalf until he arrives. For a while, she'll be a queen not just in name, but in practice. So, as the knight gallops into Winchester, he knows that he's bringing the news Eleanor has been dreaming of for what feels like a lifetime. But what will the rest of the country think about it? Since Henry and Eleanor arrived here in 1154, establishing the Plantagenet family as England's new royal house, things haven't always been sunshine and roses. In fact, between all the rebellions, betrayals and murdered archbishops, this family has truly earned its ancient reputation of being descended from the devil. How much more of that will England put up with? Will the reign of the Lionheart be any less of a roller coaster than his father's? And what if Eleanor decides to take revenge on the land where she's been held against her will for so long? As we know all too well, with the Plantagenets, drama is never very far away. And the wild ride they've already taken us on is about to get even wilder. I'm Dan Jones, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is History. Season 2 of A Dynasty to Die For. Episode 1, Winds of Change. When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either, and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to a brand new season of This Is History. I'm super excited to be bringing you the next instalment of our journey through the mad, bad and sometimes completely ridiculous world of the Plantagenets. Actually, I'm having trouble just sitting still in my seat because I've done plenty of work on this family over the years and I can guarantee you that in this next act of their story, things go even further off the rails. There's going to be epic battles, doomed romances, dastardly family betrayals and catapults full of snakes. This season is going to make season one look tame. Yes, even including that episode featuring the cows of war. If you know, you know. Actually, if you don't know, meaning if this is the first episode of our podcast you've listened to, then you're definitely going to want to go back and binge your way through season one of A Dynasty to Die For before you dive into this one. Right, let's get back to Winchester. Because it's there, in the high summer of 1189, that we just heard William Marshall, self-appointed best knight ever and guardian of the Plantagenet galaxy, gallop into town to tell Eleanor of Aquitaine that old Henry II is dead. I said Marshall had a rough journey to England. In fact, he was pretty lucky to make it at all. So many people were piling on ships to cross the Channel and witness the transition of power from Old Henry to Richard the Lionheart that there was a crush in port at Dieppe. The huge throng caused the deck of the ship Marshall was on to collapse and he hurt his legs so badly that it would take years to fully recover. It takes more than a mere mangled leg to stop this guy completing his nightly mission. You can imagine him hopping through the wreckage. Tis but a flesh wound! Anyway, one way or another, Marshall gets to Winchester and, as it is later written in his official biography, he lets Eleanor know that she is now a free woman and in a more comfortable situation. It's true that in the last years of old Henry's reign, he'd loosened the conditions of her house arrest. She could travel, and she had a decent entourage of servants and a wardrobe of appropriately grand clothes. All the same, she'd been subject to her husband's whims, and he'd kept control of the purse strings. So it was freedom only up to a point. Now she's got the real deal. Marshall's biography, a 19,000-word poem about his life composed after he died, never mentions exactly what Eleanor's reaction is when he passes on the rather momentous news. Your tyrannical husband's kicked it. Your favourite son is the king. Oh, and he wants you to rule England until he's back. I mean, we can probably assume it's not so much boo-hoo as hell yeah. So what happens next? Well, in Marshall's case, once he's delivered the message to Eleanor, he leaves her pumping her fists and dancing the conga, or whatever she's doing, 
and speeds off to attend his own personal business. He was loyal to old Henry right up until the day he died, and the old king granted him a reward, which Richard has agreed to honour. That reward is a marriage to a young girl called Isabel de Clare, the daughter of a powerful lord called Strongbow. Isabel is heiress to Strongbow's vast tracts of land in England, Wales and Ireland. And since Strongbow is long dead, that means whoever marries Isabel will become an important lord themselves with the right to claim the title Earl of Pembroke. Up to this point, Marshall has been a very well-to-do knight who's earned himself a lot of money and a big reputation thanks to his daring deeds in tournaments. But stepping up to the level of Earl is huge and it's going to ensure that he stays right at the heart of our story for a good while yet. So Marshall doesn't waste a moment. He rushes to London, takes delivery of the 15-year-old Isabel from her official guardians and hustles her straight down the aisle. Anyway, let's leave Marshall and get back to Eleanor. What exactly has her son Richard, the new king, asked her to do? One chronicler, Ralph of Dis, sums up the situation neatly. Queen Eleanor, who for many years had been under close guard, was now trusted with the power of acting as regent for her son. Indeed, Richard issued instructions to the realm that the Queen's word should be law in all matters. Now, in the early days of Henry II's reign, Eleanor had often wielded a degree of power when Henry was out of the country, but nothing as sweeping as this. She's not just holding the fort... She's the boss. From having just a modest household of servants attending to her personal needs, she now gets to recruit a full royal retinue. This includes a small army of penpushers, overseen by a justicia, a sort of 12th century prime minister, in the form of the brilliant lawyer and administrator Ranulph de Glanville. These penpushers travel with Eleanor as she goes on a royal tour of the realm. The chroniclers say she goes from castle to castle and city to city, making her presence felt. Eleanor takes oaths of loyalty to the new regime from barons and other political figures. She hears complaints about the old king's oppressive policies. She reverses some of his most petty and unpopular measures, like his insistence that abbeys had to put up his horses in their stables free of charge. Perhaps most meaningfully for her personally, she starts freeing prisoners. Everywhere she visits, you can hear the scrape of keys in prison cell doors and the unclanking of manacles, as people who had fallen foul of old Henry were released from their captivity. Why? Well, put yourself in Eleanor's shoes. She's been under some form of arrest for a decade and a half. It's not surprising that she wants as many other political prisoners as possible to share in the joys of liberation. This isn't just Eleanor using her newfound political power to satisfy her own whims. It's actually great public policy. Exactly the sort of thing you're supposed to spend a bit of political capital on at the start of a new reign. Eleanor wants people to feel good about Richard, to feel good about the Plantagenet project again, 
and to feel good about her too. If we can believe the chroniclers, it works. Around this time, the writer Richard of Devizes leaves us with a character sketch of Eleanor. He calls her an incomparable woman, beautiful yet virtuous, powerful yet gentle, humble yet keen-witted, qualities which are rarely found in a woman, still tireless in all labours. Okay, put aside the raging misogyny, if you can. I know it's hard to believe, but this is kind of a backhanded compliment from a medieval monk. There are a few chroniclers who find the prison releases pretty distasteful. Like a good medieval tabloid columnist, one wails that Eleanor is setting criminals back on the streets to terrorise decent, hard-working folk. But in general, her actions are popular with the people who matter, and it's generally agreed that she's done a great PR job for the Plantagenet brand in the months after old Henry's death. She does all this despite being 65 years old, ancient by 12th century standards, and even after hearing a very sad bit of personal news around this time, that her eldest daughter Matilda, Duchess of Saxony, has died in her adopted home in Germany. History doesn't record her manner of death, only that she was in her early 30s. For Eleanor to get on with the job under these circumstances is testament to what an extraordinary character she was and will continue to be in our story. For people at the time, this new burst of energy, together with a sense that the entire kingdom is getting a good shake-up, all feels like a sign that things are heading in a different direction. To borrow a phrase from modern Silicon Valley tech bros, the new regime is going to move fast and break things. That starts with Eleanor touring the country. Then in mid-August it goes up a notch, or make that several notches. Because now Richard finally arrives in his new kingdom. Once he gets his crown, he's going to show everyone exactly what kind of king they've got. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The world's full of people celebrating their successes, but if the Plantagenets have taught us anything, it's that failing is much more interesting. So that's why I'm certain you're going to love the podcast How to Fail. The very brilliant Elizabeth Day invites guests on to talk about three of their biggest failures and what they've taught them about life. It's a great way to hear a new side to people you may think you know. Guests include Bernie Sanders, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Stanley Tucci. Give it a try. Find How to Fail wherever you get your podcasts. Eleanor is back in Winchester when her favourite son Richard the Lionheart arrives to see her and inspect his kingdom. It's an emotional reunion and the chroniclers of the time see it as destiny being fulfilled. According to Ralph of Dis, 
this isn't just mum and son throwing themselves into each other's arms. It's actually the realisation of one of the popular prophecies of Merlin, which said, The eagle of the broken covenant shall rejoice in her third nesting. Well, I suppose if you squint at it, I mean, Richard was Eleanor's third-born son, and the broken covenant could be her marriage to Henry gone wrong. And, yeah, I mean, I guess it works. By the way, if you want to know more about Merlin and prophecies and Arthurian tales in Plantagenet England, check out our subscriber-only episode from the start of January, where I got stuck into that sort of thing with the great historian of British medieval myths and legends, Amy Jeffs. Anyway, more important than a vague prophecy is the political partnership Eleanor and Richard are renewing. They'd worked together before, in Aquitaine, when Richard was a teenager sent there to learn the ropes under his mother's supervision. Now they're players on a much bigger stage. Top of their list is arranging a coronation for Richard. Eleanor has had her team on this for weeks, and things are well in hand. She's commissioned some music specially for the occasion, with songs that proclaim how God has ordained a king greatly desired by us, and that celebrate the return of the Age of Gold. There's some other family business to get out of the way before the big celebration. Business that involves Richard's brothers. You'll remember from season one that his eldest brother, Henry the Young King, and younger brother Geoffrey of Brittany have both died. That still leaves Richard with several other brothers. There's John, Eleanor and old Henry's youngest son. And there are a few of Henry's illegitimate kids knocking around too, at least one of whom Richard feels he needs to deal with. He's also called Geoffrey. His mother was probably one of Henry's girlfriends, a woman called Ikenai. He was given a church education, but was never actually made a priest. Until now. Richard and Eleanor see young Geoffrey as a potential troublemaker, maybe even a threat to the throne. So they force him to take the priesthood immediately, and sweeten the deal by giving him a plum job. He's made Archbishop of York, the second most important churchman, in England. One troublesome brother down, one more to go. John is definitely not what you'd call church material. He's only in his early twenties, but he's already proven himself slippery, devious and untrustworthy. Richard and Eleanor figure the best way to keep him from making himself a nuisance is to give him a lot of lands and wealth, and hope that keeps him busy. So, in late August, John is married to another of England's rich young heiresses, Isabel Countess of Gloucester. That was a match-up originally proposed by old Henry, but Richard and Eleanor get it over the line and hope it'll keep John sweet. No spoilers, but as we'll soon see, it's debatable whether John actually has a sweet side at all. Then, with all that done, it's finally time for the coronation, which is held at Westminster Abbey on September the 3rd, 1189. It's a special day for history super nerds like me, as it's the first English coronation we have a detailed record of. We know that there's a parade through the streets of London, 
with Richard and Eleanor at the head of it. We know that Richard marches into Westminster Abbey flanked by high-ranking barons, including his brother John, carrying dazzling ceremonial gear. Swords of state, scepters, golden spurs and other assorted bling. We know that the music Eleanor commissioned hails him as the flower of chivalry and a bright star who's going to fix everything and make the world a better place. We know he strips off his shirt and smears himself with holy oil. We know he takes the crown off the high altar himself and gives it to the archbishop, who places it on his head. We also know, intriguingly, that there are no women allowed in the ceremony, other than Eleanor herself. Some historians thinking of the fact that this is the same Richard who had reportedly once shared a bed with King Philip Augustus of France, have noted this with a smirk. As in, all those hunky nobles glistening with oil, strutting about with their best kit on, or indeed off, doesn't this look a teeny bit like an episode of Queer Eye for the Plantagenet guy? Sorry to disappoint, but it's likely that there's a much less fun reason for the lack of women. Richard is still engaged to the King of France's sister, Alice. The thing is, he's not massively keen on wedding her. Not because he's having too much fun with her brother, but because he strongly and probably rightly suspects young Alice had been the victim of his sexually predatory father, Old Henry. Privately, Richard has decided he will definitely not be marrying Alice, but publicly he has to continue promising that he will, because he needs to keep her brother Philip sweet as an ally. But if she appears by his side as his fiancée at the coronation, it'll be much harder to wriggle out of the marriage deal in future. So, Richard decides on the highly unorthodox policy of having no women present at all, except for his dear old mum. Using a sledgehammer to crack a walnut is very much a Richard move, as his brutal military career has already suggested, and as his reign will absolutely confirm. But that approach has worked for him up to this point. He's made it to the top of the tree, so why change his ways now? In any case, in Richard's mind, the coronation is only a prelude to what he's really come to England for which is cold, hard cash. A lot of it. Enough, in fact, to raise an army, sail it halfway around the known world, fight multiple battles against the enemies of God and man, and return home in triumph to be hailed as the mightiest king since forever. At least, that's the plan. The trouble is, it's going to come at a cost. A truly terrible one. But that's for next time on This Is History. Thanks for listening to our premiere episode of Season 2 of This Is History, A Dynasty to Die For. We'll be back next week with another helping of Plantagenet drama. But in the meantime, I have a little treat for you. This week on our subscriber channel, This Is History Plus, we're going even deeper into the murky details of why the new King Richard has to be wary of threats from other members of his devious family, 
even dark horses like his half-brother Geoffrey. Here's a sneak preview. Geoffrey, weirdly, although we haven't really talked about him a massive amount, is Henry II's oldest child. The thing old is, Henry. Old Henry, but he's not Eleanor of Aquitaine's. Son. Oh right. He's one of Henry II's illegitimate children, the oldest one. He's probably born around 1151, so he's sort of three, four years older than even Henry the Young King. And he's probably the child who, in fact, he's definitely the child, or the son at any rate, who gives Henry II the least bother. So take the war of 1173 for the war without love. Eleanor of Aquitaine, Henry the Young King, Richard and Geoffrey all line up against their father. Who's on Henry's side in England? It's Geoffrey, the illegitimate child. He's the loyal one. And in fact, after the, the war is won, when Henry comes to England, he says to the, the older Geoffrey because I'm trying to distinguish between oh, him right, and Geoffrey yeah, of Brit- yeah. Count Brittany, all the rest of my sons are bastards. You're the only one who's proven his legitimacy. So that's a sort of measure of where Henry sees him. He's very educated. He's given a church education. He's not quite a bishop. And what I mean by that is he's elected to be Bishop of Lincoln, but he never takes the office. In fact, he resists taking the office for so long with his father's backing that eventually the Pope gets fed up and says, you either become the bishop, you know, have the ceremony, become consecrated, or you give up the office. Having the office means he gets all the profit of the lands. Not taking up the the position means he's not consecrated as a priest. So one day, if needed, he could sort of unbecome a bishop. Right. What I mean by that is there's not impossible he could be his father's heir. And when you get into the 1180s and Henry II is an old man, well, not, he's not an old man, but he's coming towards the end of his, his political career and his life, he actually makes Geoffrey the royal chancellor. From 1181 through to 1189, Geoffrey's effectively his prime minister. And in the war against Richard the Lionheart and Philip Augustus, Geoffrey leads a quarter of Henry's army. He's the, he's the son who's there with Henry when he dies. Oh. That's how close he is to old Henry. And he never takes up this position of being formally a bishop or an archbishop. So that's the situation you get to at the start of the episode we've just done in season two, where you've got Henry's got this son who's actually his favourite son. He's just illegitimate. That's why when Richard decides he's going off on crusade, he's like, OK, I've got a younger brother, John, who's just a, a, just a car crash. Mm-hmm. And like a, he's an obvious problem waiting to happen. We know everything we know about John tells us this. But he's got this older, illegitimate brother as well who he's got an equal need to keep a lid on. That's why they make one of the first things they do is make him take up the position of Archbishop of York, which has been promised to him by Henry II. But he's, he's still dragging his heels about whether he's going to do it or not. He wants the money of being Archbishop of York. Why does being Archbishop of York stop him becoming a threat? Well, because then you're consecrated as a priest. You Then you can't become a king. Right. And it's hard to deconsecrate. It doesn't look great if you... I mean, once you become a, a priest or an archbishop or a bishop, you can't sort of wheedle your way out of it. Mm. Uh, it's a status you can't easily revoke. Whereas if you've never taken it up... It just becomes a little bit easier and it puts a little bit more uncertainty into people's minds. The story through the rest of Richard's reign, and actually John's reign as well, is that they're going to have constant problems with Geoffrey. Not that he's trying to take the throne for himself. He's just always causing trouble. There's always some problem, because he becomes Archbishop of York, there's always some problem in the Archbishop of York. Do you know when he's just one of these people who he could fall out in an empty room and you'd have to go into the room and say, what, what's happened in here? 
and he's up he's upset the ghosts mm. like he's that much of i wouldn't say trouble he doesn't go out of his way to cause political problems because john does that john goes out of his way to create political crisis jeffrey's just like it just it just he follows him around did he want the crown like why is he causing all these problems is he just to like stir it up or did he ever want to take the throne why is he being such a I think that's a great question. I think what you see, he likes the fact that people think he might do. Right. I think he knows that realistically it's not going to happen unless, you know, Richard and John go the same way as Henry the Young King. That's not, that's not totally impossible, but I think it's a, it's, it's a big outside chance that he's going to actually be the guy who takes the crown. But it doesn't hurt him for people to think that it might just be be a possibility you know he and he just likes that sense of um being a, to provoke them he's a disruptor you can listen to the full episode right now by subscribing to this is history plus subscribers get all episodes of this is history completely ad free plus access to our special subscriber only weekly bonus episodes and we have a heap of these shows already waiting for you, including interviews with some of my favourite historians about all things Plantagenet, like The Best Way to Become a Knight, The Legends of King Arthur, and why the French King Louis wasn't really such a dud after all. Click Try Free at the top of the This Is History show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you listen.